With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Some other things to talk about 
during that time, events that are going on and so on. But anyway, a lot of events are going on now. And the first thing here on September 1st, the U.S. Navy Construction Battalion personnel, the Seabees, uh, uh-huh. began to arrive at Guadalcanal. So I guess the uh, U.S. established a very big base there on Guadalcanal. Is that the way it works? That's right. That makes me feel so stupid to say that that way, but I hear all these names all the time all my life. I don't really put them in a, in place somewhere where I understand it in my mind. So there you go. So that was going to be their uh, their headquarters huh, in the Pacific for the time being. Yeah, it gave them a, a air base much closer to do uh, bombing on the island chains on the way to Japan, a supply base. Uh, so it was a, a really a huge step in their uh, rolling uh, on further into the Pacific. Right. Okay. Well, we'll get started then, if you're ready. Okay. 1st of September, 1942, evening. Chirac and the charms of Vienna. Vienna before 1918 and after. Vienna, Munich, and Berlin. Churchill's visit to Moscow. Gotha on smoking. During the two years that he's been in Vienna, Chirac has come more and more under the influence of the city. I myself have never succumbed to the magic of Vienna because I have been adamantly true to my German sentiments. Before 1914, Vienna was incredibly rich, and she was not burdened with those puffed-up parvenus who were an ornament of Berlin at the time. The Viennese cuisine was delightful. At breakfast, nothing was eaten. At midday, the little midinettes lunched off a cup of coffee and two croissants. And the coffee in the little coffee shops was as good as that in the famous restaurants. For lunch, even in the fashionable places, only soup, a main dish, and dessert were served. There was never an entree. A menu in French was unknown. The first time I came to Berlin, I was given a menu printed in French. The same custom, I found, was followed up to 1933 in the Chancellery, but I swiftly stopped that when I got there. After 1918, the average Viennese found himself reduced to extreme extreme poverty. But before the war, it was wonderful. Never shall I forget the gracious spectacle of the Vienna Opera the women sparkling with diadems and fine clothes. In 1922, I was again at the opera, and what a difference. In the places of the cultured society of old, there now sat the Jewish riffraff. The women stretched out their hands to show off their jewelry, a heart-rending sight. I never once saw the imperial box occupied. I suppose the Emperor Franz Joseph was not musical. I am an implacable enemy of the Habsburgs, but the sight of this mob sprawling to the very edge of the imperial box was disgusting and repulsive, and it angered me immensely. I returned to Vienna quite recently. This repellent mob has now disappeared, but Vienna is an impoverished city. In the old days, it was quite a sight to see the handsome carriages bowling along the roads, which are for the most part paved with wood. The relations between master and man in old Vienna were charming in the mutual loyalty and affection which characterized them. 
There's only one town in Germany, Munich, in which social differences were so little marked. <clears throat> I can blame no Viennese for looking back with sad longing to the Vienna of old. My younger sister is filled with this nostalgia. Berlin, of course, is a city vibrating with energy. It has all the faults of youth, but it will soon learn. In former times, Berlin was a simple and dignified city. Then came the epoch of the 19-course dinners, the surfeit of bad food indifferently cooked, the era of Wilhelm II and the bad taste, which was its hallmark, a happy hunting ground for the upstart, a vicious and degenerate society, and a court life that was as ridiculous as it was undignified. A woman like the wife of General Litzman had not the entree to the court, but any old rich Jewess or the daughter of any old Chicago pork king was most welcome. The old Wilhelm was a grand seigneur, but Wilhelm II was a strutting puppet of no character. The most insignificant letter of Bismarck is, is of more value than the whole life work of this Kaiser. Parliament was wondrously ornate, but all lath and plaster. The Grand Hall, again, lath and plaster and Trieste marble. It is our task to see that Ber the Berlin of the future is worthy of the capital of the world. Not a city of feasting and carousing, but a city beauteous and gracious to live in. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about this yeah. part. And then yeah, let's the break that because it, it yeah. changes right here. You, you know, I'll just say right off the bat, this last thing he said here about old old Wilhelm, he means Wilhelm I, who he thought more yes. highly of than Wilhelm II, was a grand seigneur. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but seigneur. Yeah. Seigneur, maybe. Seigneur. Yeah, seigneur. And... Um, and this comes up a lot in Germany, this phrase, for these, uh, these, these were aristocratic-type men, landed people who were always horsemen. You know, you had to be a great horseman. That was what they, they took a lot of pride in that. So that, that is a part of being a grand seigneur. And in the military, they considered themselves, uh, horsemanship was very important. In that, oh, yeah. in those days, in the military, and they call considered themselves grand seigneurs. And this is used again a little bit later. But uh, you come across that that was uh, kind of their snottiness because they looked down on those uh, on commoners uh, and considered if they saw someone who was uh, of this caliber, they'd say, "Well, there's a grand seigneur," um, and uh, he wouldn't have anything to do with. So this, this had uh, to do a, a lot with the class. Society. That's right. I thought it was interesting that it's not. I guess when when I think about it, it's not at all surprising, but interesting that even in the chancellery in 1933, yeah, in in Berlin, the menu was was printed in French. French. I suppose that is was supposed to be you know the make it classy. Of course, it was, mm -hmm. and probably a lot of the, the dishes were French. But there mm -hmm. was Hitler. Not being a klutz or anything, but saying, you know, insisting on the the respect for Germany and the German language and not going along with this Frenchifying things. And I wonder if uh, in the White House, if they had that. It seems like I have, I didn't check it out, but sometimes I think they had menus printed in French in the White House for their big banquets, uh, inter, you know, for 
foreign guests and so on. Uh, well, that that would be all right. Um, truthfully, I I can't eat too much French food. It's too rich. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they eat whole uh, eat all that stuff with all that all those sauces and so on that they put on everything. Oh yeah, full of butter. But um, and uh, you might want to comment on some of these things about the Jews <laughs> in the <Yeah>. opera. <laughs> well, uh, you know. Uh, of course, is is the defining of Vienna as such an incre- incredibly rich place before 1914, and then of course what World War One did to it. Uh, it was then it turned the exact opposite, and you know, and Hitler was saying uh, before you you had kind of classy people uh, attending the opera and the emperor's box, but then when he went there in 1922, I think he said it was uh, mm-hmm. then uh, all of the uh, the box and the, the areas around it where most of the important elite used to, of Austria used to sit now set the Jewish riffraff uh, very uh, uh, you know uh, pompous in their attitudes and showing off jewelry and things like this and uh, well they were very wealthy then, he calls them riffraff oh, yeah. but they were actually the, the great had great wealth these Jews and uh, yeah what a difference they made I guess Jews were were in Vienna for a long time, but some of them got real rich during the war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, yet, you know, he considered them, even though if they had money or whatever, they were still low-class and arrogant people. And then, uh, you know, he says this repellent mob now has uh, disappeared, but uh, Vienna is an impoverished city. And so, uh, anyway, I thought that was interesting. And then that where he mentions the epoch of the 19-course dinners. And I thought, Lordy mercy, uh, what a waste of food. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what, what, that's, that's, a go, that's taking uh, ornateness, I guess you could say, a little bit uh, far. But uh, yeah. that's something. It is. And then he brings up the Chicago Port King. You know, with mm-hmm. the, it might be uh, some, some rich Jewish... Or the daughter of any old Chicago pork king. That is that money became everything, and uh, and the yes. gracious life in Vienna, where the master and and the man, he says, you know, who who served him, yes. his, uh, got along fine, you know, and had a sure. good relationship. But now it, it, it was it had all changed, and that has to do with making money uh, first, and money that's right. uh, that's so often made off of war. Yes, and I thought it was uh, interesting uh, too, uh, Carolyn, where he said, where he's talking about what you just quoted about the the relationship between the master and the man being uh, charming and uh, mutually uh, respectable. And then he says there's only one town in Germany, Munich, in which these social differences were so little marked marked as well. And uh, you know, so he saw that uh, that kind of uh, uh, class distinction. Uh, in a lot of German cities, and 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 then he he says that nice thing about Vienna, and then says there's only one town in Germany, and that's Munich, where yeah. they also there's so little observant class. A southern town in Bavaria, so it's Munich. I mean, Bavaria and Austria are very similar in a lot of ways. They go together. They they've yeah. got that that dividing line border, but it doesn't really mean anything, you know, as far as the people go. They're sure. they're probably more similar than 
than uh, the people of Bavaria and the people of uh, Brandenburg or further north even than that. So, mm-hmm. so they say anyway. So it said. Well, I didn't realize this last one was so short. I mean, the rest of this section is so yeah, short. We- I thought it was longer, but it kind of goes in with it with the next section so exactly and we have mentioned on a previous show in fact maybe even last week uh, but pretty recently mm-hmm. about churchill taking that trip to moscow to visit with stalin and uh, that has been made mention of but anyhow that's what he goes into right here churchill's visit to moscow has done him a lot of harm not only in the eyes of the labor party but also in those of the conservatives it was the most futile stupidity he could have committed and on his return, he was greeted with the most marked frigidity. He had pleased no one. For one side, he had gone much too far. For the other, he had not gone nearly far enough. Today, I appreciate what Goethe meant when he said that there was no more repulsive habit than smoking. It is admittedly all right for the honest old burger, and whether he smokes his occasional cigar or not does not matter in the least. But it is not for people like us, whose brains, night and day, are on the rack of responsibility. Speaking for myself, it is the nights which I find are a torment. I know that I shall never reach the ripe old age of the ordinary citizen. But what would become of me if I led a life like his, smoking and drinking my time away? I really like this part. I did, too. That was an interesting personal observation about, he, he said, I know I'll never reach the age of the old age of the ordinary citizen, but by staying away from smoke and drink, uh, he was going to get as many years as he could out of it. Right, and and he's also said elsewhere how Churchill is such a, a degenerate, you know, and he, he oh, drinks yeah. and smokes, and how can he lead a country properly and so on uh, when he does that, and Hitler was very sensitive or uh, responsive to what uh, to all his responsibility and tried to take care of himself although he's the one that ended up uh, with health problems but i think he had a sense that that he was taking a toll on his terrible sure. toll on his health because he was so exact about everything and he's so up all the time and it wanted right. to be wanted to be at his best all the time and worked all the time and didn't sleep well either right. so he just knew that he wasn't going to last that long and and he really didn't, but he says um, that if he did live like some of these other people, even the people around him who smoked and drank his own people, that he, he couldn't handle it if he if, if he was doing all of that. So he thought right. it would affect him negatively, and that's sure. true. And and let's he's very clear that he's really disapproves of smoking. He doesn't like drinking mm-hmm. too much either. A little bit That's of drink, right. but he really hates smoking. So he didn't. He didn't want any smoke. He didn't want people to smoke in his presence. People who smoke, right. you think about that. If they, if if uh, they were able to meet Hitler, he would say, "Oh, go away, <laughs> <laughs> get away from me." <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll move on to second of second of September, nineteen forty-two, midday. Justice and injustice, anomalies and confusions. The case of the poachers. War on the criminals, habits and customs of the mountaineers, the Gauleiter of Corinthia. Yeah, Corinthia. That's you know that's where uh, that's where uh, Wilhelm Christman was from. Corinthia. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. 
That's down in that uh, southern portion of Austria. Kind of a long, wide thing. But very, always very, very national socialist down there. Very national socialist. A certain butcher had a vicious dog, which one day he deliberately set on a small child. The child was very badly mauled and died. The public prosecutor demanded a sentence of several years of penal servitude, and the court sentenced the man to two and a half years simple imprisonment. There we have one case. In another, a man gets three months for kicking a chicken. There was a case which concerned me very closely. A certain blackguard asserted that I had spent the whole of my war service as a cook, that I had then deserted, and that it was only thanks to the revolution that I was reprieved. Naturally, I took him to court, where he was fined 50 marks. Very shortly afterwards, the same judge fined our friend Zipar 80 marks because his dog had barked at a Jew. It's high time that our courts introduce some measure of relative continuity in their judgments. As things are, the judge is far more interested in the soul of the criminal than in that of his victim. I observe that since the revolution, no sentence of death has been carried out on the young blackguard who murders a girl because she's going to bear him a child. His state of mind, they tell me, must be taken into consideration. Meisner himself explained it to me as if it were a matter of course. To Gertner, I have always said, are you mad to recommend mercy in cases like these? There's only one thing to be done carry out the sentence. Let me tell you that the hardened criminal is in for a very bad time in Germany in the near future. Youngsters, on the other hand, who are guilty of some foolishness, will be arrested, of course, but they'll be quickly released to prevent them from coming into contact with the professional criminals and being subverted by them. But such anomalies uh, anomalies as the sentencing of one man to two and a half years imprisonment because his dog has killed a child, and of another, a poacher, to three years for killing a hare, cannot be tolerated. With poachers, let the punishment fit the crime. Enroll them in the Pioneer Corps and send them to fight against the guerrillas. That a poacher will sometimes shoot to kill when caught in the act is a heritage from the old days when a peasant was subjected to torture for having killed a hare, which was ruining his crops. Personally, I cannot see what possible pleasure can be derived from shooting. Think of the tremendous ceremony that accompanies the slaughter of a deer. And the hare is shot, not sitting, but on the run to make his end more spectacular. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals would do well to turn its attention to the sportsmen themselves. One of the prime causes of peasant revolts against their seniors has been exasperation at the damage to crops and fields done by the latter in pursuit of their pleasures. Do not think I'm pleading the cause of the poacher because I'm one myself. I have never fired at a hare in my life. I am neither poacher nor sportsman. Among mountaineers, shooting has become a passion. A youngster will crawl upon a dozen hills during the night in the hope of getting his chamois, and particularly the male of the species. 
One must, of course, remember that meat is very scarce in the mountains and that game is very often the only meat a mountaineer can obtain. Of course, we must suppress the activities of the poachers. But as I have said, let the punishment fit the crime. Send them to fight the guerrillas. Make them into a marksman's corps d'élite. After all, the best game pe keepers are retired poachers. In regions like the Styria, Salzburg, and the Tyrol, if I excluded poachers from the party, we should lose the support of entire districts. Like chamois, girls are rare in the mountains. I must say I admire those lads who tramp for hours through the night carrying a heavy ladder and running the risk of being badly bitten by the watchdog or of having a bucket of cold water thrown over them for their, their pains. I have much more sympathy for them than for the type who wanders around the big cities rattling his five or ten marks in his pocket. On the other hand, there are times when the countryside has its advantages, though none but the brave deserve the fare. The nights of May, the month of the festival of the Holy Virgin, are wonderful in the country and afford wonderful opportunities for a tender rendezvous to say nothing of the various pilgrimage, pilgrimages which offer a good excuse to spend the night anywhere. In Austria, it is in Carinthia that these happy practices are most prevalent, and it is there one finds the loveliest maids. I'm very glad that I sent Rainier to Carinthia. He comes from those parts. In point of fact, all the Gauleiters in Austria are good men. I was deeply grieved to hear that the former Gauleiter of the Lower Danube had been killed in action. Leopold was a man of outstanding quality. With his company, he used to protect my rallies in Austria with the utmost efficiency. He was a captain in the Army of the Republic, and at the same time, chief of his local section of the party. He was no great orator, but a man of exceptional idealism. I did not even know he was at the front. Had I known of his intentions, I should certainly have stopped his going. Right, so there's a little more. There. Yeah, you know, and there's uh, there's a little bit more uh, evidence of his uh, feeling about shooting and animal uh, killings and and uh, judicial uh, insanity in uh, sentencing for different crimes. And uh, he just, you know, he touches on this uh, quite often in the book, and it's yeah. just a little bit more of it. Yeah, and this is really good. He says the but the butcher set his deliberately set his vicious yes. dog on this child. And the yes. child died. And then yes. they gave the guy um, two and a half years. Two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and he's making the point that... Oh, go ahead. No, I'm you sorry. Know, I, you know. I was just going to say, if anything, certainly deserved a death penalty. That was it. And I, I feel like he felt the same way. Well, maybe you couldn't prove that he did it deliberately, but, uh, you know, people thought so, but... In any event, uh, I don't know about the death penalty unless you could prove that he really wanted to kill that child. But it's um, it's just the way things work, you know. And what he's pointing out, too, is that uh, you can get uh, the, the noblemen that we were talking about, the seniors who take their hunting very seriously, and they like to hunt hares. So it was yes. it was against – it was very serious for anybody to – other than themselves on their property there to kill a hare 
or to right. the poachers, whatever they did with them. What did the poacher do there? They steal them and then they sell them or what? They take them somewhere else? What is poaching? Well, that's a killing game that's not yours or on someone's property. Oh, you kill. Uh, oh, they kill it. They kill it if they're a poacher. Oh, they're going on somebody's property and hunting where they don't have the right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, so if you do that, you get more uh, harsher sentence than if you kill a woman, a young a young woman. And that these all these uh, uh, young men who would who would uh, get a girl pregnant and then kill her, so that uh, she would uh, so that they wouldn't have to deal with that, they'd get an right. easy sentence because the people in charge thought, well, you have to consider how their feelings and how worried they were and so on. Wow, you know. Now that, of course, really gets me going. Well, then you you kill both the girl and, and the unborn child. Right. But these kind of things went on. Don't think that, you know, he wouldn't be talking about it if they didn't go on. That's right. And he was totally That's against right. it. He was totally against mm-hmm. it. He didn't see uh, females as worth any less than males ever. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he didn't, he didn't, uh, wouldn't, see it that way and also particularly an animal you know but uh so yes. i really appreciated this this section uh, of yeah, his here myself. and then he's he's talking about the guys what would you call kind of a courting style in the countryside <laughs> and yeah. how they in the in the springtime you know they go go put out all that energy trumping tramping through the night to, with a ladder, see if they can go and oh, yeah. climb up at her loafing, window you know? and see her. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. had to go through an awful lot to uh, get to spend some time yeah. with the girl that it, that they liked, which is sweet. And he made, he made the point of saying that the female population in those areas were was very slim uh, as well. So... Well, I don't know why, unless it was just a slim population to begin with, you know. Far, yeah, well, far you know, between. in the mountains. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a different, it's a different life in the mountains and a little bit tougher. And, uh, you know, but, uh, and he mentioned that about shooting the chamois, that goat uh, or uh, antelope, if you want to call it that. And, uh, and any, you know, he made the point that, uh, uh, at first, it's, you, you thought he was uh, uh, talking negatively about these hunters killing the chamois or the, the antelope goat up in the mountains. But then he said, you know, uh, meat is very yeah. hard to get up in the mountains. So you, you got to use a level of uh, common sense and understanding. But, you know, what he didn't like about the hunters is hunting for sport. They yes, didn't that's right. Any of that stuff. You know, they, it was a, and it was a huge sport. It still is a big sport, but... I don't know why he. I, I I'm not against killing via hunting, to the extent that he is at all. But he really didn't like it. He's really against killing things. What what a guy! You know, instead of instead of all these books written about what a monster he was, people sh- should write some books about about his psychology from another point of point of view. Right. Um, you know, because right. he was a very strong, tough man. At the same time, boy, he had a soft a soft side mm-hmm. and a soft heart. Sure. For innocent things that were uh, that couldn't defend themselves very well, you That's know, right. for un- uneven, uneven. The guy, the big guy, and all his group on horseback with their guns and so on, and this little animal <laughs> that they're chasing down. He, he didn't like the whole picture of that. No. And he and he and I are on the very same page on that stuff. Just a, 
it's been a personal feeling of mine. Even though I'm in a very uh, devout hunting state, I've never grown to that, and it, I just feel the same way. I, particularly as time goes on, I mean, the wildlife are getting pushed out of the way. Uh, it's habitat encroachment. Uh, so many more two-legged creatures now, and pushing a, the four-legs one to extinction. And and unless they're killed because somebody's hungry, uh, then then that's I can understand that. But to go out and shoot them to put a, a head on the wall uh, mm-hmm. to me is an abomination. Uh, yeah, so I, that's just personal feelings, you know. Yeah, you you've all, you're an environmentalist in the best sense, I think. Well, um, Thank you. And so, uh, another plug for Corinthia. Yeah, Corinthia is a very mountainous uh, area, but very beautiful. Uh, lots of skiing goes on there. And Hitler was there in uh, 1938. He visited the area when he was uh, before the vote for uh, the Anschluss took place. And Willie's sister met met him. And there's a picture that I have where she's standing in a crowd around him. Not a big crowd, it was indoors. Uh, everybody wanted to see him, everybody wanted to talk to him. He was very, very popular in Corinthia, and there was a lot of National Socialist activity going on there before before 1938, and everybody was happy. Uh, not everybody, but most people were happy when, when he said that was, a big, that was a, an area of big support for Hitler. Okay, we'll uh, move on to 2nd of September, 1942, evening. A Museum of the Chase, Political Evolution of Britain, The Possibility of a Volte Face by Churchill, The Tories Oppose Churchill, American Greed, My Contacts with Lord Rothermere. What an absurd monstrosity Christian Weber's Museum of the Chase is. In Munich, there is an Alpine Museum, but it's not the mountaineers who visit it. They're all out on the mountainside. I said to Weber, you're a clever fellow in a lot of ways, but the one thing of which you know nothing is art. Not a soul in Munich will put a foot inside your museum. The sportsmen won't, and the others most certainly will not. I don't mind sports in their proper place. Let the youngsters go skiing, by all means. But God defend me from the stupid old Gauleiter or Reichleiter who tries to emulate them. I do not believe that Britain is going left. If she did, it would be a catastrophe. For as long as the war lasts, Churchill will remain, but I do not regard it as beyond the realms of possibility that some event, like perhaps the fall of Stalingrad, may compel him to make a complete complete volte face. A leading statesman has, of course, his eye on the possibility Uh, proceedings the state may take against him once the game is lost, and this may act as a deterrent. When once the terms we offered to Great Britain are made public, there will be an uproar throughout the kingdom. If a change of leadership occurs, the first thing the new man should do would be to release all those who have been incarcerated by Churchill. They have already been in prison for three years, and a better preparation of the spirit of revolution does not exist. These people would soon settle accounts with the Jews. It is possible that Moscow is using Churchill as a puppet. The British hate and despise the Bolsheviks, and one day the break must come, believe me. Stalin is the arch blackmailer. Look at the way he tried to extort things from us. 
the Americans will certainly take Canada, and they may well have other demands which Britain will not tolerate. The result must be unbroken and intense tension. They are doomed to defeat. Even if they were to defeat Germany, Russia would still be there south of the Caucasus, and against Russia, they can do absolutely nothing. Opinion in the Conservative Party is against Churchill. The man who, in my opinion, may well play a leading part is Beaverbrook. He at least can say, I told you so. The most sensitive part of a man is not his skin, but his purse. The people know well that the game is up. They know that the game is up, and on top of it all, they face the prospect of losing India. If India should, be, should suddenly rise and civil war should break out, they will be terrified lest the Japanese should gain a foothold in the country. When war was declared, a bare 40% of the members of Parliament were in their seats. Immediately afterwards, on another occasion, 254 members ostentatiously refrained from voting. Never has Britain waged a war which is such an offense to the intelligence and which was thrust upon her by a small clique. Iceland, too. The Americans will never give up. The Americans and the British brother nations? So what? The German Brotherhood of Nations fought the most bitter internecine war for centuries on end. If only Britain had supported the southern states in the American Civil War. And what a tragedy that God allowed Germans to put Lincoln firmly in the saddle. The first time the princess visited me, she brought a letter from Rothermere. I asked Neurath if he considered it advisable for me to receive her. His reply was that if we could get Rothermere on our side, it would be a terrible accomplishment, and that terrific. at all costs, I a must hear what she had to say. Right. A terrific yeah. accomplishment. You said yeah, terrible. I'm sorry. Ter yeah, a terrific ac accomplishment, and that at, all, that at all costs, I must hear what she had to say. When the scarecrow appeared, I muttered for God and fatherland and braced myself to receive her. In his letter... Rothermere said he would gladly use his press to further a rapprochement between Britain and Germany. We subsequently exchanged a series of letters, one of which was very important. I had written to Rothermere to say that I had no grounds for hostility toward Italy, and that I considered Mussolini to be an outstanding personality, that if the British thought they could ride roughshod over a man like Mussolini, they were greatly mistaken that he was the incarnation of the spirit of the Italian people. In those days, I still had illusions about the Italians, that attempts to strangle Italy were futile, and that Italy, as Germany had done before her, would look after herself, and finally that Germany could be no party to any action directed against Italy or Italian interests. Thereupon, Rothermere came over to see me, and the princess accompanied him. <coughs> I must admit I prefer a friendly little kitchen wench to a politically-minded lady. Nevertheless, the fact remains, the attitude of the Daily Mail at the time of our reoccupation of the Rhineland was of great assistance to us, and it was also over the question of our naval program. All the British of the Beaverbrook Rothermere Circle came to me and said, in the last war, we were on the wrong side. 
Rothermere told me that he and Beaverbrook were in complete agreement that never again should there be war between Britain and Germany. Later, the princes sought, by means of a court case, to make use of this correspondence to her own advantage. She had taken photostat copies of all the letters and sought permission of the court to publish them. The judge, and this shows that, in spite of everything, judges are decent people, said that he had read all the letters, which reflected great credit on both correspondents concerned, but that he could not see that this was a good reason for their publication. <coughs> There's some fascinating stuff in that little section right there. Mm -hmm. And uh, several, you know, of course, the initial thing was the, the talk of Churchill and uh, going over to kiss up to Stalin in Moscow, and then he uh, incurred not only the wrath of the Labor Party, but his own conservatives as well, and, the, uh, and so uh, th that was a big part of it, and that the British were kind of on the ropes because they're facing maybe a loss of India, and he talks how the Americans are greedy. They're going to grab up anything they can, but <coughs> the thing that well, stood out to me in this, and it's okay, because of my... Uh, personal experience as a teacher of American history was when he observes this, if only Britain had supported the southern states in the American Civil War, and what a tragedy that God allowed Germans to put Lincoln firmly in the saddle. Now, that first statement, if only Britain had supported the southern states in the American Civil War, that actually was given strong consideration by the British. I think what Hitler is alluding to here was that had Brit the British supported the South in, the, in its war of independence, the South would have succeeded. And the uh, American machine that he was facing here in World War II would not be that kind of America. It wouldn't be that same America. Probably, maybe he considers it would have still been divided into Confederacy and Union. Uh, I don't know. And then this, the tragedy that God allowed Germans to put Lincoln firmly in the saddle. Uh, and that, there's a lot behind that uh, that's fascinating study. It uh, kind of referred to uh, radical Germans uh, with the abolitionists that Lincoln uh, thought hand-in-hand uh, -hand with, as well as uh, German volunteer troops or newly, uh, newly arrived immigrants to the United States that joined the Union Army. Uh, and they were very good uh, military people. So that just kind of caught my eye, as I say, uh, Carolyn, simply because I taught a lot of American history. Well, I figured it would, and it caught, caught my eye, too. Um, mm -hmm. He has these, uh, he lets us know here, these opinions he has about American history and what's been taking, what's taking place there, how he would like to have seen it be a little bit different. But I think it also... Well, I got the impression when he talked about uh, Americans will certainly take Canada, that he really misunderstood some things about that because the Americans would not have taken Canada. He, he was seeing some kind of a big rift between the U.S. and Britain uh, over... Well, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, but over territory. And what he's assuming there is a, Britain, a British loss of World War II, uh, a British defeat by Germany. Well, if that happened, then Britain is certainly going to lose her empire, and territories that she's got a hold of, like India, will definitely say, hey, you know, Britain went down, they're no longer our bosses. Uh, and and I, can't, I think maybe he felt that way about Canada, that oh, instead of all this allegiance Canada. to the... Huh? 
to protect Canada, maybe, to keep it on their side, they would uh, take over yeah. Canada because Britain wasn't able to do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense, Ray. Yeah, seeing it from that from that point of view. Right, because I thought, you know, um, it, I thought it was a territorial, I was thinking of it as a territorial thing that, like, Germany needs more territory so badly, but America... Uh, the United States didn't, doesn't need didn't need more territory. They have plenty of territory, so they wouldn't be taking over countries nearby in that way in order to uh, have more territory. That's not what they yeah. what they needed. But if it's if it's concerning a, a, a British uh, defeat, um, then they would well, move into to protect. Well, I them. saw it also as a possible territorial grab because. These uh, people running Washington, D.C. at that time, if they see England has lost the war, <clears throat> then they think, okay, whoever has beaten England may decide to have uh, ambitions towards the British Empire and start grabbing oh. uh, well, the British colonies, one of them, which was yeah. Canada. Yeah. And so we'll take over Canada before someone else can grab it. Well, uh, I don't that, consider that, that a territorial grab. But I consider it more of a protective, yeah. Uh, yeah. protective move, and Canada yeah. would have been... Uh, Agreeable, I suppose, to do it or something. But well, that's uh, you know, there, he's he's going into a lot of speculation there about what might happen. Right. Um, he he certainly thought, even still now, that there was more chance for Britain to turn the government to change for yeah. Churchill to be kicked out and these other people right. to take on. And maybe there was it was there, but it it didn't happen. Uh, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean that it might have been a, po a possibility. And he was still seeing that. Well, he also mentions the fall of Stalingrad just as a passing thing. Like perhaps the, the fall of Stalingrad would cause a change. He, oh, this is where he's talking about. Um, yeah, that if things might change in Britain. Some uh, big event like perhaps the fall of Stalingrad because we are just uh, two days away from the beginning of the Stalingrad, or maybe Stalingrad has already started the attack on Stalingrad. So he's yeah. not talking about it. He's staying, you know, he's not talking about it in, in these uh, dinners. He's staying away from that. But he's very aware that it's going on and probably is expecting to uh, a victory there, probably expecting Yes, that, yes, and uh, Carol, sure. that's an important point. It's it's a very important point because, of course, when I first look at that, I say, okay, he's talking about the fall of Stalingrad, and I'm thinking, okay, you mean the Russians winning that battle? But no, what he's thinking about is the Germans winning that and the Russians losing such a key battle, and the Russians being an ally of the British, uh, mm -hmm. such a defeat, which exposes Moscow to be hit hard, um, just might make Churchill do this about face, and, and uh, you know, it says it may compel him to make it a complete about face. In that, mm -hmm. hey, we might be backing the wrong dog here, uh, uh, backing Stalin. <clears throat> so that was the importance of, uh, you know, a big victory by the Germans at Stalingrad would have certainly changed things around. Right, and so then he's uh, that's that's very good, Ray. Thanks for that. And then he's. Uh, Therefore, saying, well, you know, then this might happen and that might happen. So it's not, it's not silly speculation. Um, he's just trying to think of the various ways things might go, uh, which right. is what he should be doing. And then uh, he's got these friends in Beaverbrook and Rothermere. 
And yes. did you look up? I looked up the uh, and found out about the uh, Nazi princess. And it's a pretty interesting story. I guess you didn't, right? No, so I didn't. I didn't tell you about it. Okay. Well, um, she was Princess Stephanie von Hohenlohe. Okay, say that right. Princess Stephanie von Hohenlohe, a, a German from one of those families. And she uh, got to be friends with Rothermere, who was the owner of the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror at the time. And she was working for the Germans. She was in, in England, friends with Rothermere and Beaverbrook, too, but mainly her connection was with Rothermere, and became very big in society there. And she was uh, holding salons and, you know, that kind of knew all kinds of people, talked to all kinds of high-ranking people in uh, in uh, Britain, in high society and so on, and in the government. And she she would uh, was trying to help Germany, but she was part Jewish. And uh, that was known, but uh, Hitler didn't really want anything to do with her. But uh, he had to meet her, and he called her a scarecrow here on one one part, yeah. uh, where was that, when the scarecrow showed up? But he was doing it for yeah. Germany. He said, I reminded myself for God and the fatherland <laughs> before she walked in the door <laughs> of his of his office. So he didn't care for her. I, I put some pictures on the uh, slideshow at Blog Talk. But she's, uh, anybody wants to look her up, you can just look up the Nazi princess and find her. That's what they were calling her. Maybe, I don't know about at the time, but but these were people that he was aware of and was dealing with, and and these were ongoing things that here in September 1942, still pretty early, and anything could happen is basically what he's saying mm-hmm. here. Um, right. But then this, uh, this woman, she was a real princess, was trying to use things for her own advantage, he says. These letters, this correspondence, I'm not even clear what the correspondence was. Was it correspondence with Rothermere or somebody, something else? In England, the judge at the court did not give her permission to publish those letters because of that correspondence because it included other people that she didn't have the right to expose, I guess. So I found that interesting, of course. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And, and, And see, that to me, this stuff was going on before the war started. Uh, because, you know, he says there, Rothermere told me that he and Beaverbrook were in complete agreement that never again should there be war between Britain and Germany. Uh, and so I thought maybe he was referring to uh, pre-war, uh, because he said at the time of our occupa- reoccupation of the Rhineland, uh, the Daily Mail was a great assistance to us. And it says here, of course, that the, the British of the Beaverbrook-Rothermere circle came to me and said, hey, in the last war, we were on the wrong side, and they should, we should never fight each other again. And so there were these letters between Hitler and Rothermere uh, that uh, were kind mm-hmm. of a, a, you know, a, a nature that, uh, like the judge said, they were uh, both the correspondents reflected great ca- credit. But, of course, none of that stuff could be published because the British people would have been exposed to uh, e- either the fact that, hey, there were a lot of British British people who felt like uh, this was a very bad thing, to, uh, the war, and it could stir up problems. Uh, and then you could also look at it from the point that he was trying to protect, as you said, the people that may have been involved that uh, to have this stuff published, and they didn't give their approval to it. So he just said, hey, 
you know, the the, the letters are interesting, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, they reflect great credit on both correspondents, but I can't see that this was any good reason for those letters to be but he published. Seemed to, Hitler seemed to think it was good that they weren't published. Uh, so. <coughs> yeah. And that, that I don't kinda, quite get uh, that. He said that she had yeah, uh, copied all those letters, photostat copies. She made photostat copies. Mm -hmm. She got hold of those letters. They weren't her letters, I guess. She got hold of them and made copies. And then she right. wanted to publish them. Maybe some of them were uh, to her and from her, too. Um, but uh, it's not clear. See, he's just commenting here on it. Everybody knows what it's all about. <laughs> That's the first I've ever heard of it, and I didn't get any details like this. In what I was, in what I looked up, but I just looked that up to, this afternoon, so um, okay, it would be interesting to go into it some more. Well, but, yeah. now we've got a timeline for okay. September third, and it says the Battle of Stalingrad proper may be said to have begun on this date with German troops in the suburbs. Even civilian men and boys are conscripted by the Red Army to assist in the defense. So there we are. And, of course, the 3rd of September is the third anniversary of the day that England and France declared war on Germany because of the Polish operation. That's right. They don't mention that. Uh, well, maybe some of this that said has, you know, people are aware of that, but uh, they didn't bake a okay. cake over it, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Ownership of the soil and its products. Fools to the top of the tree, the press and parliamentary immunity. The soil belongs to the nation, and the individual has only the rights to the loan and the fruits of it. It is therefore the duty of everyone to extract the maximum value from the good earth. When Professor Hoffman asserts that his property is the most productive in his district, then that, I think, is a good justification for his possession of it. The more he puts into the earth, the more he will get out of it. I have just read in the Hoechstreiger the assertion that the soil of the Ukraine is no more fertile than that of Germany. All I can say is that the article must have been written by someone who knows nothing of agriculture. If the same amount of endeavor were exerted here in the Ukraine as is exerted by the farmer in Upper Bavaria, the rich black soil of the former would offer a far greater yield. The office theorists are invariably men who have had no practical success in life. Herr Wagner, proud holder of honorary degrees, is appointed agricultural advisor to the party, and later we find that he has made a mess of every single thing he ever undertook. It is the same in every branch of the state machine, but particularly in the agricultural branch, that the blockheads are put in authority over the experts. Whenever anyone writes anonymously, I immediately think, judging from its stupidity, this is probably another article by Kranz. Every article should bear the signature of the author. During the struggle period, all the newspapers had a permanent editor, either a man who was soft in the head, in which case he stoutly spent as much time in prison as out of it, or a member of the Reichstag. Then the damn German Nationalist Party came along and voted against parliamentary immunity, with the result that when the Reichstag was dissolved, the detectives were outside waiting for their victims. 
our own supporters had the most astonishing adventures in escaping their clutches. I've often thought that if only we would give up wine, what wonderful fruit we should have. They must be drinking too much. I can just imagine they're all, having, they're all bringing out another bottle of wine or something or having some <laughs> other kind of fruity schnapps, and he decides to make that comment. It has to be something like that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Give up wine, eat those grapes. <laughs> yeah, he's sitting, he's sitting there with his tea. <laughs> yep. Oh, well. Good, good old... Oh, what a great man! He sacrificed so much. He did. He he did everything to 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 do what was best for Germany. He did everything to do all he could, mm-hmm. and to make other people do all they could, you know, and to push people along and so on. Boy, he right. gets mad then, you know. I like it. Here he used the word "damn." Then the damn yep. this other damn party came along and voted against something. Um, yeah. He he get he has uh, immediate reactions to things. And he certainly is right when I'm sure in all of the, generally in all of his uh, judgments about the people who are intelligent about what they're doing and those who are not. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and you know when he says about the damn German Nationalist Party came along and voted against parliamentary immunity, what I'm assuming here, Carolyn, is that uh, parliamentarians, the people who are members of that, have uh, immunity. In some of the things that they express from the podium or write or, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, somebody on the outside wants to charge them with treason or arrest them or whatever. And when uh, when the German nationalists voted against parliamentary immunity, it dropped that immunity. So that therefore, when the Reichstag was dissolved, then the uh, heavy-handed guys were outside waiting to arrest these parliamentary member, members who had ticked somebody off with something they said. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, and he yeah, said he even our own supporters. Was not for, he obviously was for par- parliamentary immunity. Parliamentary immunity, that's correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. Of, course, of course, at that time, <coughs> when he would have been concerned about it, he had his members in the parliament, and they were the most radical in a sense, you know, probably, and he, you know, they were looking for things to get them on, and he wouldn't have wanted that, so they would have have wanted immunity for themselves, so then everybody else could have it, too. Yeah. Okay, shall we move on? Yeah. 3rd of September, 1942, evening. A monument Franco must erect. Never yield an inch to Britain. No war against the British, but against the clique who rule them. Cultivating the artistic taste, a few artists. Franco ought to erect a monument to the glory of the Junker 52. It is this aircraft that the Spanish Revolution has to thank for its victory. It was a piece of luck that our aircraft were able to fly direct from Stuttgart to Spain. One thing is quite certain, we should never have got anywhere with the British if I had given way to them in one single instance. Today they regard me as capable of anything, hence the satisfactory reply to our demand for the immediate cancellation of the order to manacle prisoners of war. We must persist in our assertion that we are waging war, not on the British people, but on the small clique who rule them. It is a slogan which promises good results. 
If we say we are fighting the British Empire to the death, then obviously we shall drive even the last of them to arms against us. And do not forget that there are very many among them who never wanted war. If I give Churchill grounds for declaring that Britain is fighting for her survival, then I immediately close the ranks for him, ranks which at the moment are most desperately torn asunder. What has Britain achieved by her declaration that she will destroy the German people? I'll tell you what she's achieved. She has wielded the whole, welded the whole German people into one mighty determined fighting unit. Of one thing I'm sure, the people at present at the helm will continue the war until they see that it can no longer be won, and, and this is important, are at the time, same time satisfied that a cessation of hostilities will not mean the destruction of the British Empire. In spite of everything, I therefore think that we are psychologically right in continuing to declare, now and in the future, that we're not fighting against the British people, but against this ruling clique. Remembering, no doubt, that in the olden days the princes of the German electorates caused themselves to be crowned by the French, the present pretender to the French throne addressed me immediately after the armistice, saying that he was prepared to conform in all things uh, to German law. What a spineless fool! There are pictures which the eye of a peasant girl is not capable of appreciating, just as there are peasant lads whom it would be useless to take straight off to a performance of Tristan. One of Britain's great sources of strength is that she does not hesitate to give the people the things they understand and like. In Germany, the filthy Jews have succeeded in condemning nearly everything that was healthy in art as junk and trash. The later canvases of Mackart are of no great value, for by that time he was a mentally sick man. The Jews condemned them, but that did not prevent them from praising to the skies equally indifferent works, for the very reason that the creators of them were mentally deranged. <laughs> the blackguards derided Piloty, Kohlbach, and Keller. The first Burkles I bought cost me about 300 marks apiece. But Berkel, of course, was a prolific painter whose living depended on his brush. The only artists to whom the damned Jews gave any credit were Slevogt and Trubner in his later period, and, of course, Leibel. I have the best collection of the works of Spitzweg in the world, and they are worth anything from 60 to 80,000 marks each. I have also paid 80,000 marks for a defregger. From one point of view, that is a lot of money. But when one remembers that they were the sole pictures of an epoch which would otherwise have never been perpetuated pictorically, it's nothing. For photography, remember, did not exist at that time. It is German painters who painted the Campagna, not Italian. So it was in the days of Gotha. And so it, has, so it was in the days of Gotha. And so it has always remained. We must teach the British to appreciate not only the Germany of the Gotha epoch, but also the mighty Germany of today. Oh, I like that ending. I like that last line there. Mm -hmm. I can just, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there again, he's so pushing Germany. He wants recognition for Germany. And obviously, at this time, he's something is going on, and he is thinking there's 
he's hoping there might be some agreement with Britain because he even says here that there's some That's right. kind of negotiations. Where is that? Um, uh, oh, way up here. At, at, um, well, anyway, I don't, I don't know where that particular line is, but he does say it. Um, so... September 1942, I don't know of what was going on now, um, but something was. And they were playing him along, no doubt, making him think that uh, that they were that there was a group there that was serious. Because that darn uh, black ops intelligence that they had going was, uh, was uh, had, had this stuff all secretive that nobody, nobody was aware, but they were setting up... Uh, situations where it appeared that these friends of Germany uh, had were making uh, um, some advances and they, they might be able to change things in the government and so on. But none of that was right. ever going to happen. Uh, right. So, but, but I can't say what exactly this was all about. Um, well, I, you know, I, I really have no firm proof to back it up, but uh, having read so much of this stuff that was going on at this time, and 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 then also realizing that, uh, you know, the Tyler Kent affair and those uh, sw- swapping of cables between Churchill and Roosevelt. Yeah, and what was the I year do, that? That was a lot earlier, wasn't it? Yes, that was 1940 huh. and 41, but what, what I do uh, think was possibly happening here, Carolyn, was that that probably Hitler had given his diplomatic corps, uh, equivalent to our State Department, you might say, the the uh, okay if they wanted to extend feelers to any, uh, let's say, uh, powerful friends of Germany or at least people who were not supportive of Ch- uh, Churchill's actions, feelers as to, look, you know, uh, our government uh, would be interested in talking this over with you guys, uh, you know, if you just uh, if you're interested, let us know. I think I think those kind of things were probably going on. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, between yeah. those two countries, and I do know that in 1943, the German government tried its best to. Uh, they through the Vatican, they sent uh, word to uh, England uh, to, uh, hey, uh, we're willing to call this war off a cessation of hostilities and we will pull our forces back into German territory uh, and concentrate on stopping the Soviets uh, and and sign a treaty with the British, with you British and whatever. And of course, Roosevelt and Churchill said, uh, hey, to hell with you, unconditional surrender. So they prolonged the war for two more years, resulting in millions more death. And all that kind of stuff has never come out. But uh, that stuff was certainly going on in 1943. So, uh, and there was probably a little bit of it going on here in 1942. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but but later in 1943, it was obvious. You know, with Stalingrad gone and the Germans uh, uh, having to retreat uh, along the Eastern Front, that uh, uh, they didn't have the manpower and the equipment to uh, keep fighting the whole damn world. You know, the combination of the USSR, the British, the Americans, uh, and other nations that had allied with uh, the Allied powers. So 
the writing was on the wall. It was going to be a loss. It was only a matter of time unless the uh, secret weapons could be developed, and we know that story. And then he's talking about the uh, about art again, and he makes the point yeah. that uh, that some people we call he uses peasant girls and uh, peasant lads mm-hmm. um, are yeah. not going to be able to appreciate the, That's right. the finer things of art, and that Britain again he sees Britain doing this better than Germany, and that he, he let gives them the things that they do understand and like, and they they mm-hmm. they're not they're not asked to either enjoy the finest things or have nothing. He seems to be saying that the Jews are in, that that's not happening in uh, Germany. I'm not sure, but then I'm not sure what his point is there. Well, but it, I, you know, that, I, that uh, you should have something, you should give people what they really like. And that's kind of yeah, what, ties in with when he talks about colonies and so on. You know, in, in the colonies, just let people have what right. they like and don't try to educate them beyond what they're ready for. Yeah. Well, and that's a valid point. I, I also uh, lean toward the uh, interpretation as being, when he says here, one of Britain's great sources of strength is that she does not hesitate to give the people the things they understand and like. To me, that's simply a, uh, the, the two different kind of cultures. You have uh, popular culture versus high culture. Well, that's yeah. exactly what I just said. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. I make that yeah. clear. Then he talks sure. about this, uh, these uh, artists and he, uh, the money that he's paid for these paintings and eighty thousand marks for a defragger, which might he seems he thought seemed too, like too much, but he's saying you know you have to consider that that uh, there, it's the only one picture in that epic at that time in paintings. And they're very realistic right. paintings. I put one of them on the on the slideshow of the mm-hmm. of on Blog Talk. That painting that's there is a Defrager. This is the type of thing, and they're very photo, you know, uh, realistic, as I said. But th- this is, um, you know, it shows that he's he pays attention not just to what he likes in art, but to the value of things and the whole right. art historic uh, <coughs> meaning in them and so on. Um, he's quite the art connoisseur and collector, and so was uh, Goring. You know, yes, this idea right. that everything from the Jews is just stupid and wrong. Anyway, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, he was investing in this art, right. and also, trying, also he bought mostly German art, uh, not all, but uh, in order to promote German art. So, sure. Let's get going here on this next one. I got a timeline for the fourth. Irish Republican Army riots occur in Belfast during the night on September 4th. The Manhattan Engineering District is formally created. Full effort production of the atomic bomb is begun on the 4th. And this one is interesting. The chief state of Vichy, France, Pétain, Philippe Pétain, and Prime Minister Pierre Laval, who are both uh, what you call collaborators with the National Socialist Government there, create what will become the service du travail obligatoire STO so a little a little thing about that this was the law of 4th September 1942 signed by Petain and uh, as well as Laval it was it had the name in English of law of 4th September 1942 on the use and guidance of the workforce 
It required all able-bodied men aged 18 to 50 and single women aged 21 to 35 to be subject to do any work that the government deems necessary. And I kind of read about it some, and I know that there were French, uh, French people working in Germany. Some of them even worked in the camps. Uh, they weren't camp inmates. They, they were employed there. But I wonder how many actually went, because it doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't seem like it. they were, like, cleaning out people able to work in France and go to Germany. I don't, but that's, uh, that's what that's all about. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay, then the 4th of September, 1942, midday, intelligence and a knowledge of foreign languages, confession is good for the soul, folk dancing, an acrobatic danseuse, people traveling, Grok's grotesque house, some architectural peculiarities. The speaking of several languages is not necessarily a proof of intelligence. For a child to speak two or three languages as the result of having had an English or a French nurse is an everyday occurrence. Spanish women, even though they speak several languages, are outstandingly stupid. Franco's wife, for for instance, goes to church every day of her life. I admit confession has its uses. The woman has the satisfaction of absolution and permission to carry on with her little games, and the parson has the pleasure of hearing all about it. But, of course, it must all be paid for. These Hungarian girls have a terrific temperament. The tabadee is the devil incarnate and the very devil of a baggage. The Hungarian sardas is a fine dance comparable to our schuplatler, and worthy of any man. Our ballroom dancing, on the other hand, is, in my opinion, the essence of effeminacy. Some years ago, I was visited in the chancellery by one of our youngest artistes, the little Endress, who at the time still was a little girl. She came to see me about something, a request for a reduction in the cost of transporting her baggage, I think. And now, I hear, she's the foremost tightrope actress in Germany. Recently, she petitioned for the release from the army of her brother, whom she wished to have as her partner in a tour she was undertaking of Wehrmacht units. She had been unable to find any other suitable partner, and it seems to me that he would give us more value entertaining the troops than fighting at the front. When I saw her before the war, she was an angular, awkward little maid, but even then a great future was being predicted for her as an artiste. I read recently that a whole family of acrobats had fallen to their deaths, and I therefore immediately ordered that no dangerous acrobatic turns should be permitted without a safety net. It is not right that some brilliant artiste should fall to his death through some tiny miscalculation, and the presence of a safety net does not lessen public attraction to an act. I was once present when a fatal accident occurred, and I decided I would never risk it again. My nerves are already exposed to quite enough strain without fortuitous additions of this sort. The main thing is to give <coughs> excuse me, the artiste the chance to exhibit his prowess. Failure in a special trick <coughs> is no reason why he should lose his life. Next time, he will do better. But in variety turns the public 
in variety turns, the public expect the artiste to take more and more risks. My greatest pleasure is to see clowns like Grok. Such people are the sounding board of the human soul. Grok's house on the Riviera was so astonishing that a Hindu pagoda is a sober Prussian dwe dwelling house in comparison. Only a raving madman or of a Saxon <coughs> could have conceived anything like it. On the road from Freiburg in Saxony to Dresden, I once saw an edifice of the same kind, a real masterpiece of bad taste. We had stopped for a meal at a restaurant beside it, and we were told that the owner had made his fortune in the Far East. And it was in this house that the alchemist, Tausend, carried out his experiments. At Berchtesgaden, we have succeeded in maintaining a unity of style. I do not think we ought to build Swiss chalets at Grunwald, but in districts like that, <coughs> like that, a broad pent roof is necessary. Otherwise, the wind drives the rain, which then runs along the length of the planks and eventually rots the wood. Wind should be given no means of access, and the upper story must be protected against water. In the Erzikberg, it is better to retain the dark-colored slates. The Rhineland, unfortunately, lacks uniformity. But in the vicinity of the Alps and all the way to the Algau, one finds the most beautiful farmhouses with their gaily-colored facades. <clears throat> so once again, we're talking art and architecture. Yeah, he's very sensitive. He, as he moves around uh, in the Reich, he's, uh, or he used to, uh, probably not doing it right now, but he still remembers from when he was. He uh, sees uh, the way the places look, the towns and the areas, and, you know, how they blend together, how they don't, and so on. And he just so has this aesthetic sense all the time. And look at how well he remembers it all, too, and he's oh, talking yeah. about it. You know, he doesn't have any trouble with that. Well, this was an interesting in uh, talking about these artistes and yes. and how uh, how he doesn't like to see them take chances that they don't need to take and how he read about this whole family of acrobats and had fallen to their deaths and he insisted then that there be always be a safety net. And this word sure. turns, I, all these turns means I guess what we might call tricks or doing something. Yeah, I guess acrobatic when you when you switch when you do something that's yeah, it's difficult trapeze, to do for the most yeah, part. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. it's called a turn. So uh, he says that, the, and it's true that if you have a net there, it it doesn't. You don't think, oh well, they're not taking any chances, so this is not interesting. It's still the skill of them being able to do that without making right. a mistake or falling down. And it is ridiculous to have people have no net there and have people fall to their death, which does happen. Right. Uh, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, even today it happens. So uh, right. and then when he says my nerves are already exposed to quite enough strain, see there again he knows that he's he's pushing himself with all of this, and uh, he's trying to protect, uh, you know, care for himself properly. He doesn't need to add any more excitement to his life. <laughs> and then the right. thing about this clown, well, I really enjoyed this. I looked him up and I watched a video. There's some videos on the internet, if you Google his name, that you can watch. They're old ones from back then. Huh? I think this one I was watching was 1931. And he was doing his, I had to stop because it was pretty long and I, I couldn't keep watching it, but he was doing a, a, his routine. 
a little bit corny in a way, but that's the way clown stuff always is. And sure. I think it was it was very interesting that Hitler said, my greatest pleasure is to see a clown like this Grock. And he says, these people are the sounding board of the human soul. That tells you a lot about Hitler, that he enjoyed watching this clown's act and found it probably funny and probably laughed at it and so on. That's right. I would just like to see that. I, I bet that, because um, there is this human quality, that's what clowns are supposed to be, the kind of the human pathos and so on. But this right. uh, Grock was, uh, he was uh, quite famous. He died, he lived until 1959. He was born in 1880. Wow. His name was Charles Adrian Wetak. Wetak. He was Swiss, actually. He was, uh, and he was uh, called the King of the Clowns and the Greatest of Europe's Clowns. And he was one of the most highly paid entertainers in the world at one time. Yeah, well, we never heard of him, but he, it, it is interesting. Yeah, is. I'm glad you looked that up. I, I, I had thought about it. I just didn't take the time to call it up today, but I thought that's interesting. I, I, was, I wanted to know more about that uh, Brock fella, so... Very good. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, sometimes we just don't have the time to look up all these things. I know, I know that. There's some things here I would have looked at, but looked up, but I forgot to do it. When I'm reading it, I think, oh, I need to look that up, and then by the time I finish reading yeah, that section, I've forgotten <laughs> to do it. Well, it's uh, 8:25. I don't know if you uh, want to yeah, do this, this next, this next short one. Yeah, you just do it? a couple okay. paragraphs. This is the fifth uh, Australian, and, Australian and U.S. forces defeat J Japanese forces at Milne Bay, Papua. We've mentioned million, Milne Bay before. So this is the first outright defeat for the Japanese land forces in the Pacific War. They evacuated and uh, their failure to establish an air base eases the threat to Australia. So there we see that this is a major milestone, I guess. Turning uh, point. Yeah, turning point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 5th of September, 1942, midday. The Monastery of Malbron. You can't help liking Spain. The Monastery of Malbron is one of the most beautiful in existence, thanks chiefly to the fact that it ceased to be a monastery in the Middle Ages and has not, like so many others of its kind, been altered or modernized in any way. The rules of the order, which I've read, were extremely severe. In winter, the monks had but one room heated. This common room was built over a cellar in which fires were lighted and from which pipes led, to, led the hot air into the room above. The Romans employed the same system 2,000 years ago, and the remains of their heating installations are still visible in the castle at Salzburg. Spain is a country for which it is impossible not to entertain feelings of affection. The Spaniards are full of grandeza and in war of courage. I do not think there is a German who would not agree with me. One of our principal regional chiefs has just recently returned from Spain, and he's longing to return there. I do not think I have met anyone who is not filled with admiration for the Spanish. Interesting. Yeah, he's he certainly got the Spanish in good favor right at this time here. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, I guess we can we can finish right. We've got a, a one minute and forty four seconds to go, which really means we have forty four seconds to go. I think. <laughs> okay. But, um, 
uh, something like that. Anyway, uh, we will be starting uh, on with Serrano Sr. next week again. That's right. So it's uh, 90 seconds and now. Go ahead. September the 5th, yeah. So this has been an enjoyable program, Ray, I thought, and I, I enjoyed uh, this, these readings tonight very much, and I hope the listeners did. Yeah, you want to say good night to everyone for us? Yeah, I appreciate you uh, being with us this evening and hope you enjoyed uh, as much discovering as, uh, this stuff as uh, Carolyn and I have. And looking forward to next, in fact, the, the entire rest of the book is, is fascinating. So be sure and stay with us, folks. We'll see you next week on the 9th. Right. Good night, everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.